we but mirror the world. All the tendencies present in the outer world are to be found within us. If we change ourselves, the tendencies in the world will also change. This paraphrased quote from Mahatma Gandhi is the basis of the program you are about to hear. I'm Dedalian, and this is Shining Stars, a program dedicated to searching out and bringing attention to individuals and organizations that are fostering positive change within our community and within our world. Thank you for joining me today on Shining Stars. Uh, mental health, it's a subject that's uh, been largely overlooked in the U.S. and probably most of the world as well. Uh, however, as the pandemic has become a part of everybody's day-to-day lives, the story of mental health has changed. Uh, a lot of people are finding that they are beginning to struggle with inherent anxiety, the depression, and of course the frustration that came with the uh, pandemic showing us that mental health isn't just limited to the few, it affects us all. Now, the Mental Health Association in Michigan, it's also known as MHAM, it is the state's oldest nonprofit organization dedicated to improving the care and treatment of mental illness and promoting positive mental health. To tell us a little bit more about MHAM, joining me in the studio today is an individual who has made it her passion for improving the lives of people affected by mental health conditions. I'm pleased to welcome President and CEO of the Mental Health Association in Michigan. Her name is Marianne Huff. Welcome to the show, Marianne. Well, thank you so much. I am so happy to be here today, really, to talk about one of my favorite topics, which is mental health. I Well, I am happy you were able to... I, I would imagine that the uh, the drive-in had to be a challenge to your own personal mental health. You, you apparently ran into quite a bit of construction, right? Yeah, it was a challenge because I live in Holland, and normally it would take me an hour and a half to get here, and it took me about two hours and 15 minutes to get here because of construction and traffic and GPS rerouting me in strange ways. And so thank you for your patience. I'm just grateful I made it. I am thankful for that you forged on and made your way here because I was uh, really interested in talking to you a little bit about the Mental Health Association in Michigan. Uh, I I was reading your bio on the MHAM website and you seem to have dedicated your professional career towards bringing more awareness and understanding towards mental health. It seems to be like your thing, like this has always been a part of your life. Uh, Tell me a little bit about yourself. Sure, sure. Well, I think that's a really good way to describe it. I -hmm. I really think I was sort of born or pre-programmed to work in the mental health space because like a lot of people that work in mental health, Mm -hmm. I have family members okay. and friends who struggled with significant mental health conditions, uh, starting with my on my dad's side, my grandmother and my uncle, both of whom struggled with schizophrenia. Okay. Uh, grandma struggled with it back in like the 20s, the 30s and the 40s when we really didn't have any treatment. Right. Um, and actually was at the Battle Creek Sanitarium. Um, And then my uncle, her, uh, my dad's middle brother, unfortunately developed the disorder as well. And um, he ended up in adult foster care um, when he got older. Uh, The interesting thing about him was that he had um, a master's in business administration from Columbia University and was very successful in advertising before he had his final breakdown in his 40s. Um, And then also... I had a younger brother who had bipolar disorder 
and a cocaine addiction that unfortunately took his life in 20, 2008. So oh, there's sorry. a lot of other f- friends and family. But like I said earlier, I think a lot of us end up doing this work because when you love people who have a mental health condition, you're very up close and personal with what goes on. And unfortunately, even though it's 2022, I believe that we still struggle under the burden of stigma when it comes to I, mental I health agree, conditions. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, and I was kind of hinting towards that in your introduction there, the fact that mental health, and you, you even mentioned it uh, back, back when, uh, I assume that was the Kellogg facility in, yes, in Battle Creek. Okay. Yes, it was. Uh, how mental health was largely, I, I think you put it best with stigma. You know, it had a stigma about it, and it still does. However, would you agree that it seems to be migrating a little bit where, where people are, are coming I don't want to say acceptance, uh, just more of a a forgiveness and understanding of it, maybe. Yeah, I I think one of the biggest shifts that's happened, particularly in the 90s, we called it the decade of the brain, Mm -hmm. because we were sort of understanding that these disorders, there's a genetic component, there's a neurobiological component, because for a long time, I'll, I'll just go back to people with schizophrenia, that, you know, parents were blamed for their children's mental illness. Now, that does not mean that, you know, somebody might not have trauma, environmental trauma, things happen in childhood that might not push them in the direction toward developing a major mental health condition. But there is definitely, all the research shows there's a genetic component that these disorders run in families. I mean, a lot of, um, they've done twin studies with individuals with bipolar disorder and schizophrenia and depressive conditions. I mean, there's a reason why, too, today we do genetic testing on individuals to determine what antidepressant will work most effectively for them. Mm -hmm. So, for example... You typically might see anxiety and depression running in families. Okay. So one of the things a doctor might say is, what what kind of antidepressant is your mother on? There's a good chance that if their mom's on Zoloft or Wellbutrin, that Zoloft or Wellbutrin might work for you okay. because of the genetics. So the good news is that in 2022, we're recognizing that depression is no different than having type 2 diabetes or high blood pressure. Mm -hmm. The negative piece is that there's still an aspect to it where it can be considered a moral failing. Parents did this to you. You know, you're not, you know, pull up your bootstraps and just get over. I mean, but that was very much the mentality that I grew up in. And and that's the way I I think a lot of us grew up is as much as that must've been difficult for you to grow up in that, uh, with, with so much of it surrounding you, the mental health conditions. Um, uh, it's wonderful that it, it kind of guided you to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, one of the uh, people that I ended up meeting, uh, randomly in some ways, uh, Kristen Taylor, your colleague, a friend of mine, we ended up uh, bumping into each other and she mentioned that, uh, she worked for the mental health association and uh, we got to talking a little bit about it. And that's that's I'm, I'm glad she was able to connect me with you. Uh, I wasn't really familiar with the organization before even meeting Kristen that day. And then she said she was working with you guys. And I was like, oh, I've been wanting to talk about this on the show. Uh, so I'm assuming that there are others that aren't familiar with the organization. So could you explain the background of uh 
of MHAM and a little bit about its goal? Sure, absolutely. So just a little bit of history so you can understand where we come from, because we were actually, when we were formed in 1936, by the way. I, I noticed that on the website, and I was... I don't want to say floored, but it's, I was because I was like, I didn't realize they were around that long. Okay. Yeah. So we were originally called the Michigan Society for Mental Hygiene. Mm-hmm. And if you ever took a psychology class in high school or college, mm-hmm. you usually would read about a guy named Clifford Beers. Okay. And the name's familiar. Yes. And the reason that's important is because Clifford Beers wrote a book called A Mind That Found Itself. Okay. And what he was, was he was a Wall Street stockbroker who had a series of psychiatric breakdowns when he found out his brother was diagnosed with epilepsy. All right. And he ended up in both public and private. At the time, the early 1900s, we called these places asylums. So he ended up in a public asylum and he ended up in a private asylum. And what he did, the conditions were so horrible that he wrote the book called A Mind That Found Itself. Mm-hmm. So basically from that book... Um, there, what came forth from that was the very first mental health association in the United States. And where was that? That was in uh, Virginia. Oh, okay. So they create the, the, basically the National Mental Health Association. And then around the country, you know, states that wanted to could create what's called affiliates. And right. so in 1936, we became an affiliate. The number one goal was to make sure that individuals with mental health conditions received appropriate treatment and care. Because the other historical piece that I must mention is that throughout the 1900s up into the 50s, we did not have any antipsychotic medications for people with schizophrenia or psychosis. Right. So basically, by the time the 50s rolled around, we had almost 500,000 people across this country in large, sprawling, insane asylums mm-hmm. or hospitals, and they didn't have really any treatment except for, fortunately or unfortunately, we had ECT, mm. electroconvulsive therapy, where mm. you shock people. Right, right. We also had, back in the 40s, we had what was called insulin shock therapy where they would give people overdoses of insulin and they would put a long rubber tube down their nose. They would put, give them high doses of sugar to bring them out of the coma. You know, uh, we used to use a drug called metronazole to shock the brain as well. Ice baths, hot baths, you know, and then the other one um, is what we call the prefrontal lobotomy, mm-hmm. which was invented by a Portuguese um, neurologist named Egas Muniz. Unfortunately, he won the Nobel Prize for psychosurgery for the frontal lobotomy. And what that did was that caused a guy named Dr. Walter Freeman, who was known as the lobotomist, okay. was was lobotomizing a lot of people. As a matter of fact, historically speaking, Joseph P. Kennedy had his daughter, Rosemary, mm-hmm. subjected to a lobotomy by Dr. Freeman. Oh, wow. And it wasn't until the 70s, I mean, psychosurgery, which is what they called it, because... 
you know, and some of you that are squeamish, you might want to not listen to this part, but what basically... I'm, I'm going to have to be one of those people. Well, <laughs> what a lobotomy was, was literally they would, they ended up because the orbital bone is one of the thickest bones in the body. Right. They would scramble the limbic system, which is in the frontal lobe. Oh. They would use an ice pick. Oh, wow. They would use an ice pick to go through the eye and scramble the connections and people would become very, very placid. Um, one of the most well-known individuals to receive a lobotomy was, um, an actress named Frances Farmer. Okay. And, uh, there's a well-known movie back in the eighties with Jessica Lange where she played. Still in the eighties. Yes. Frances Farmer. Did not Farmer. know that. Yeah. So, so, you when, know. Uh, do, yeah. you, do you happen to know when they stopped doing? Actually, the movie about Frances Farmer came out in the eighties. Frances Farmer was lobotomized in the early seventies. So it was okay. around the okay. early seventies they see. stopped doing it because not only were people having no emotion. I mean, the uh, limbic system yeah. is where emotion sits. But they were also bleeding, bleeding to death. I mm. mean, it was it was not, obviously, it was not helpful to do that. But point being that why we are where we are today, particularly with people with more severe conditions, is in 1952 was the development of the very first antipsychotic called Thorazine or chlorpromazine. Okay. It was developed by the French, and then it came to the United States in 1954. Now, lots of side effects with Thorazine. However, what it did do was it actually gave hope that perhaps we could find a treatment mm -hmm. so that we could get people out of these institutions okay. and into the community. Because around the time that Clifford Beers wrote his book, um, we used to have, when we had sprawling state institutions in this country, or actually in this state, the very first one was the Eastern Asylum for the Insane in Kalamazoo. These hospitals were actually acres and acres of land with an administration building. And then the, the patients, if you will, were flanked in these cottages. But the staff actually lived on site with the clients. They had their own bakeries. They had their own, actually, they had their own dairy farms. Mm -hmm. They had their own farms and the patients worked there okay um, so it was like a little city the problem was they were becoming grossly overcrowded to where people were like on top of each other they ran out of room and that was actually depicted so when Beers wrote his book a mind that found itself congress became aware of it and then in 1946, a book came out called The Snake Pit by a woman named Mary Jane Ward, mm -hmm. which depicted what was going on in state hospitals. Okay. That became a movie called The Snake Pit starring Olivia de Havilland. That movie actually, and this is where media is really helpful in many ways, that brought attention again to the United States Congress about conditions, and that's where the, uh, the National Institute for Mental Health was created due in part to the, the movie The Snake Pit. So MHAM, what we've been about is making sure that, number one, originally, because I have the old meeting minutes from when they founded it, it's real fun to read. Cause it's obvious that you have read them. <laughs> we had, you, you are a walking encyclopedia of this. Oh, thank you. Well, we had Mrs. Edsel Ford okay. on our board at one point. Oh, and wow. a lot of the founding members of the Mental Health Hygiene Society of Michigan, were doctors and psychiatrists 
who desperately wanted to see that people who needed to be in institutions were treated better. So okay. that was the foundation. But then it was focused on things like looking at ways to improve treatment, you know, research, public policy. Mm-hmm. For example, um, the only state hospital for children in this state is called Hawthorne Center. Our organization had a lot to do with the founding of Hawthorne Center. All right. We had a lot to do with the founding of some of the other state hospitals. Mm-hmm. As we moved on, um, we became also focused on community education about mental health conditions. And then for about the last 20 years, we became pretty focused on mental health public policy. Uh, We're moving back into education. But for example, some of the legislation that the Mental Health Association was really um, instrumental in was a bill that just got signed into law by Governor Whitmer back in March called Senate Bill 412. And for those of you who don't know, why is that important? Well, after battling for a long time, MHAM and a lot of other advocacy organizations were able to get into law that individuals with certain conditions who have Medicaid mm-hmm. do not have to go through prior authorization or step therapy to mm-hmm. have access to the better medications. That's a huge step there. Yes, it is. It, it, was, it was years in the making. So like, for example, if someone has a mental health condition, let's say they do have schizophrenia. Previously, they might have had to gone through older medications. It might not be as effective like a drug called Prolixin, Haldol. Now they can access the newer medications that are out there and save themselves the burden of perhaps a lot of side effects. So that's just an example of some of the work that we've done. Obviously, Mental Health Association in Michigan, like any organization, has evolved over the years. Um, but, but we will always be focused on mental health public policy. Uh, there's a hearing at the House Health Policy Committee. One of the issues we've been tackling is mental health parity. We have some parity bills that are out there. And if you're not familiar with mental health parity, basically the easiest way to say it is mental health conditions need to be given the same amount of treatment as physical health conditions. Okay. You talked a little bit about your story. You talked about beers. In both cases, there was some some tragedy in there, but I always like to celebrate the good that comes out of that. And a lot of what I think about is how positive change does come about out of tragedy. Part of the show is is kind of figuring out how positivity exists within us. Can you tell me about how you would define positive change and how do you feel MHAM falls into that? That's a great I question. Mean, you've already kind of expounded on it already a lot, but if you could. Sure. Well, let me let me actually say it this way. I, I define myself as really a very positive person. You seem very much so. You know, and a person who looks at a problem and, you know, depending on the problem, I might have, you know, some strong feelings about it. But here's what I say about advocacy and why I advocate. My definition of advocacy is this. It is an antidote for despair. Okay. In other words, we are presented with problems all the time. We see problems with public policy. We see problems with law. We have societal problems. Mm -hmm. I believe that one of the reasons why it's important to have advocates, because I've been a disability rights advocate for 25 years, is this. I can look at what's going on. And I can say, well, woe is me. 
you know, like uh, some personal stuff in my life, I could have said, oh, woe is me. But instead, what I did was I advocated for something better. And that's why I advocate, because I know that even though there are problems, I trust that human beings and human ingenuity can figure it out if they have the will to do so. Okay. Sometimes part of the role of an advocate is really the piece about helping people find the will to do so. Right. Uh, particularly when mental health in our state for years has been somewhat of a political football mm. um, and subject to a lot of scrutiny. I mean, you know, politics is in everything, but by the same token, that also shows that people that um, politicians and people that are elected, they do care about it. But for me, positivity is all about looking at something and instead of focusing on the worst possible outcome saying, what do I need to do to change this? Yeah. What yeah. can we, what can we do? For example, COVID, you know, the pandemic has been really hard on everybody. A lot of people have suffered greatly because of it. At the same time, the good news is that we are now finally recognizing that mental health must be treated in the same way that physical health is treated. Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. And I mean, I feel like I'm a fairly balanced person, but I, I can tell you I experienced a lot of the anxiety, the uh, the depression, things that came along with it. And um, yeah, indeed, it's uh, definitely we recognize it more. And it, and I've, I've definitely noticed an uptick, a change, uh, if you will, a focus, more of a focus on it. So it is a, a good thing. Once again, celebrating the, the, the positive that came out of the tragedy. Uh, if someone's listening is interested in uh, mental health assistance or happens to know somebody that needs help, what do you tell them? You know, what would you say is your very first step? Okay. Well, if, if someone needs mental health treatment or assistance, for me, it really is going to depend upon what the issue is. Okay. So, for example, if somebody's having what we would call an acute psychiatric crisis, mm -hmm. then where they're suicidal, mm -hmm. then I would tell them to reach out to their suicide, their local suicide hotline or Directly. the crisis yes. line. Okay. Makes sense. Um, because depending on what's going on with the person, at least when you reach out to the local crisis line, they can at least get someone to talk to. That person can do an assessment to determine what the next step is. Okay. So that's one option. Sometimes family members reach out to us because they have a loved one who's been struggling with some significant symptoms of mental illness for a long time. Mm -hmm. Families often have, when they have a family member like that, it's amazing to me that the family member with the mental health condition can go for years and years without any treatment. Oh. Because the family doesn't know what to do. Right. Part of that is because in our state, and, and it's across the country, is when it comes to mental health treatment, certain conditions a person might experience, we have what's called adagnosia, which basically is a term that means, I don't think there's anything wrong with me. Mm -hmm. So we see that a lot with certain conditions like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, where someone clearly is struggling with something but the disorder itself says, oh, there's nothing wrong with you. You're fine. You know, and the other piece to that is there is nothing that says that a person can't walk around hearing voices. 
that they can't think that aliens are, you know, tapping into their brain. And, and I'm not being facetious, but these are real things that I've heard from people sure. throughout my career. Um, or that a person can't be really depressed. Mm-hmm. But what makes what sort of the the line in the sand or the edge, if you will, where someone goes from sort of being on that edge to, you know, maybe they should get mental health treatment, but they're not a threat to self or others. But when they go beyond that, so I'll give you an example, someone who has maybe, you know, psychosis, which means they're out of touch with reality. Mm-hmm. They typically believe that, you know, aliens or someone, the police are following them. When they get to the place where they start acting on that paranoia, where they start becoming threatening maybe, or they start engaging in behaviors, or by virtue of not getting treatment, they could hurt themselves or someone else. That's when it comes time for them to potentially be evaluated for inpatient psychiatric hospitalization. So going back to your question, the real issue is what's going on with the person. And then my response is formulated around that. Because the other thing I want to mention is that I'm also a fully licensed clinical master level social worker. Okay. Um, And I've got a lot of experience as a clinician. And so whenever listening to people, a lot depends on where things are and what's going on. Okay. And a lot of this information, I assume, is on your website. It is. And I actually want to tell people, we just got a new website, so I'm really excited about it. Okay. And under resources, we actually, through Mental Health America, so Mental Health America used to be called the Mental Health Association. They are our parent organization. They have on their website a list of a series of mental health assessments that anybody can take. So Mm -hmm. if you go to our website, click on resources, you'll see mental health assessments. Okay. What they, what you can do is you can take an assessment that all of the data is de-identified, but what it will do is it will score the assessment. And if you score within a certain range they will give you information about how to access additional mental health services. Very good. Okay. And yes. what's the website address? It is uh, just punch in mental health association in Michigan and it will come right up. As any nonprofit part of MHAM support, of course, uh, system is through generosity of those willing to give. Uh, can you tell listeners how they can offer their support? Absolutely. So um, if you go on our website, we have um, memberships and a membership for people can go anywhere from $25 to $50 for people that um, are more low income, veterans, um, retired people, people with disabilities, it's $25 a year. What you get you know, if you have a membership is you get access to every month, um, we do an electronic newsletter that gives public policy updates about what's going on in Michigan. We give um, mental health resources. We talk about what's going on in the mental health community. Mm-hmm. Every um, quarterly, we do public policy roundtables. Mm-hmm. So with our lobbyist, Stephanie Johnson and myself, that's for members only. I uh, just want to say that, you know, we're, there is a lot of mental health legislation out there right now. Yes. So we will give updates on that. We do webinars Um, If you go on YouTube, you'll see that, you know, just again, Mental Health Association in Michigan, we have 18 webinars. We're always having webinars. We plan to do a lot more educational 
types of activities for members. So there are some definite um, benefits to membership. So you Certainly, can do the yeah. men- membership, but also if you want to send us, you know, money, we will not say no to <laughs> that. That's no. for sure. All right, Marianne, I want to thank you very much for coming in and talking to me a little bit about MHAM. We have one final question. It is uh, the question that I ask of all of my guests. If you had the ability to snap your fingers and put one thought into the collective consciousness of the entire human race at the same time, what would that thought be? Maintain hope because change, positive change is always possible. It's always on the horizon, too. Absolutely. Yeah, it's the one thing I have to tell myself anytime I do get in a funk is, is brighter days are ahead. They will be here. This is a passing time. Yes. That's a good one. Yes, absolutely. I mean, in the moment, things can seem really dark. Mm-hmm. And I know that we have a lot of tough stuff we're dealing with as a planet. But I do believe that when a, when people come together and they, they sort of row in the same direction and they work together collectively, mm-hmm. change is possible. And, and we, I don't think we're, you know, I think there's always a reason to be hopeful. Well, this this goes back to the same thing that we've been talking about, how so many wonderful things can come out of so much tragedy. We've seen so much of that over the last, I'd say, well, actually since 2020. Yeah. Um, so that's a wonderful one. Thank you, Marianne, for coming in and talking with me a little bit about the uh, Michigan, excuse me, the Mental Health Association in Michigan. Well, thank you. I've really enjoyed this. I look forward to it. I'd, yep, I'd love to talk to you again sometime. Thank you. Remember, we can all contribute something good to this world, no matter how big or small. A simple smile, a friendly gesture, that's all it takes to expand the power of positivity one inch further. I encourage you to find your shining star within by being the change you want to see. Thanks so much for listening to Shining Stars and, of course, sharing your time with me today. I'm Dedalian, and you can listen to this episode of Shining Stars On Demand along with other LCC Connect programs at lccconnect.org.